Last year, after nearly 10 years on the air, popular life coach Iyanla Van Zant said goodbye to her TV show, Iyanla Fix My Life. Family means more than people just being related by blood. A family is people who have positive, unconditional regard for one another. That is not what this story is about. This is a story. The show aired on the Oprah Winfrey Network and was wildly popular. I am Yamla Van Zandt, and I am here to help you do your work. But Van Zandt first reached big audiences in the mid-1990s when there was an explosion of self-help and wellness materials geared toward Black women. I can remember going to girlfriends' houses for, for card nights, spades nights, and actually having someone hand me an Iyanla Van Zandt book. Eventually, I started to wonder, these books offering to fix Black women, could they be a response to all of those books about pain that my mother and my aunts were reading? From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today on the show, wellness cultures and where they come from. The 1970s saw a renaissance of Black women writers like Alice Walker and Gloria Naylor, who told stories about Black women's pain and healing. Tamika Carey is an English professor at the University of Virginia. She says just a few decades later, these stories trickled up to a whole Black women's wellness industry, driven by figures like Oprah Winfrey, Iyanla Van Zandt, and even Tyler Perry. Tamika, you write that something called the Black women's literary renaissance that ended about 30 years ago led to the self-care movement for Black women that we see today in films and literature. Talk a little bit about the Black women's literary renaissance. So there have always been Black women activists and teachers that have published books about their lives and their struggles. But I would say that in the late 1960s and beginning in the 1970s, we see a modest explosion of Black women's literature by people like Toni Morrison with Sula and the Bluest Eye, Alice Walker's The Color Purple, and Tazaki Shange's For Colored Girls Who Have Considered Suicide When the Rainbow Is Not Enough, later Gloria Day with The Women of Brewster Place and Mama Day. And these texts, these books were somewhat different because we're getting to watch Black women and read about them going through sometimes very traumatic and abusive experiences in their home communities. But we're also exposed to these kinds of stories where Black women sometimes move from states of despair into states of their own kind of self-defined understanding of what it means to be well. So many of the books that you mentioned did expose this raw side of Black experience for women. How would you say it led to this wellness culture that we see in modern times? I started to notice, and perhaps it's because I came of age at a time where there were a lot of books directed almost instructional books directed to Black women, The Value in the Valley by Eon Levanzant, um, Interiors, A Black Woman's Healing in Progress, books that were very popular among my girlfriends when I was finishing undergrad. About when? I would say this is the early 2000s. And so I can remember going to girlfriends' houses for, for card nights, spades nights, and actually having someone hand me an Iyanla Van Zant book. But eventually I started to wonder, and that started me thinking about what does it mean to look at the kind of recovery or healing process as it's happening in Black culture? And I started to see that process all over the place in the books that ministers were putting out, in the books that Black women were writing for themselves, like Iyanla Van Zant, and even in some of the plays and the films that were circulating in Black communities by Tyler Perry and others. Right. You say Tyler Perry had a lot to do with the spread and embrace of wellness culture. When did he come onto the scene 
And what were his contributions to the movement? I didn't really hear about Tyler Perry myself until maybe 2002, but he had already amassed the following among a lot of Southern Black Christian theater goers in the 90s. He was um, writing these kind of morality plays that are really popular. I've seen them myself. You know, they they kind of travel from city to city on the urban theater circuit. I found it interesting that his protagonists were almost always women, though. Right. And I thought, this this is kind of boating with the the number of books that I'm seeing all over the place marketed towards Black women, instructions for living, instructions for empowering themselves. I think that one of the clips that I saw eventually in his film, Medea's Family Reunion, where a grandmother talks to her two granddaughters about what to do in the midst of abuse is a really good example of how he stages these learning moments. And Black women are sometimes teacher, almost always student. We have a friend and her husband is beating her and we would just like to know what we should do before or after his funeral. Does she want to get out? Does she, Lisa? Yes, but he won't let her. Sit down, let me tell you a story. I'm going to tell you this. Can't nobody help your friend until she want to get help. You can want all your life to help somebody, but if they don't want to get help, it ain't going to happen. You listen to me. When you get tired of a man hitting on you, honey, Ain't nothing you can do but cook breakfast for him. Cook breakfast. Bring him into the kitchen and get you a big old pot of hot grits. And when it start to boil like lava, after he done got good and comfortable, you say, good morning, Throw it right on him. Get your pot like this. Take it in. Throw it. You need your skillet with a nice, good, balanced weight on it. You understand? And as you throw it, you swap. Throw it and swap. You hear me? Throw it, swap. <laughs> Venus and Serena. That's called grit ball. <laughs> <laughs> that comes from somebody who has had some experience. Right, right. And I think what is done in a very endearing way in scenes like this is that Perry does tap into maternal wisdom. You know, he kind of makes available for broad audiences some of the good sense circulating in Black communities. What about the movie Diary of a Mad Black Woman? Uh, so that was his kind of breakout film, and that was released in 2005. It is another adaptation from one of his plays. In the original, the messages were very overt. You know, God gave you the strength to survive. You come from a long line of Black women that were tortured and beaten. I mean, very clear nods to a particular historical experience for Black women. It was interesting to see how those messages have been translated into a kind of more palatable, broad appealing message in his 2005 film. One of the clips that I love is from the main character, a woman named Helen, whose marriage has fallen apart, visiting her elderly mother, Myrtle, hoping to get some kind of encouragement. She definitely feels out of sorts and uh, down because of this divorce. I never ever dreamed I'd have children. And then here you go. Sweet bundle of children. What did I do? I think I shielded you way too much. Now you gotta get out there. Try to stand on your own two feet. Oh no, Mama. I can't do that. I'm not strong like you. Sure you are. You got the strength God gave us women to survive. You just ain't tapped into it yet. And so what I love about this particular scene featuring the late Cicely Tyson in the role of um, Myrtle is that it does contains important conventional wisdom about rebuilding yourself after, you know, relationship heartache. 
but it's stripped of some of the important historical messages that we would get in the play. The discussion about Black women having these histories of abuse and or having experienced abuse historically. Why would they be stripped out of this for a white audience? Why would you not tell a white audience Black women have had these abuses? Right. I think that's an important question to ask. And maybe because it doesn't, it, it makes abuse systemic. Black women, like other women of color, like other groups of women, also experience cultures of violence. Instead, it's oh, Helen married the one wrong man. And because of that, she needs this message. And so we don't we don't take the bigger view. We don't connect. You looked at Tyler Perry's movies and you saw similar messages in other places in pop culture, like Oprah Winfrey. Oprah Winfrey is um, one of the people that I think is a bridge between a lot of these figures that I've I've liked to look at. But I found her relationship with a woman named Iyanla Van Zant to be one of the most fascinating kind of connections within this whole moment of commercialized Black women's wellness. So Iyanla Van Zant is a lawyer turned Yoruban priestess turned author turned television personality. Um, I, I'm a fan of her journey, but I also look sometimes at how her writing has changed throughout her career. Iyanla Van Zant had a number of books like The Value in the Valley, um, A Black Woman's Guide Through Life's Dilemmas, Interiors, A Black Woman's Healing in Progress. And in those books, she would make messages and say things like, Black women do not understand there's no wrong in being human, only lessons. Self-knowledge is not about picking your scabs or beating up yourself or feeling bad about your wounds or weak spots. It means that you recognize you have them and you make a commitment to heal. And so those are very specific targeted messages for Black women that were appearing in the literature of the late 90s. But by the time we get to 2012, 2013, when Oprah is entering another phase of her career, she kind of reconnects with Van Zant, and the message is different. Ooh, how? Uh, well, on Iyanla Fix My Life, Iyanla now emerges no longer as author, but as healer and life coach. And so there are these entire episodes where Iyanla Van Zant is working with one person and kind of teaching them a healing process. One of the things I love is from an episode she did with Evelyn Lozada, who was a reality TV star of the time. And in it, Iyanla is giving her um, specific kind of writing and reading practices uh, for advancing her healing. And I, I really hope you'll listen to how direct she is in this clip and how she's counseling and teaching this woman to be well. Your daily spiritual practice, your daily spiritual practice, your daily spiritual practice. I'm going to send you some things I want you to read. Okay. I'm going to make you a very special gift of my, um, I call it a body wash, but what it really does is clean your aura so that you can start clearing this energy off of you. I want you journaling every thought, every feeling. I want you to be real mindful of who you allow into your inner circle right now. Don't try to be strong right now, Evelyn. Give yourself permission to be broken and weak and allow your daily spiritual practice and the universe to bring you the sources of your strength and support. Check everything. Don't feel good, don't do it. Don't try to advance career and whatever now. Take care of you. Take care of you really well. Move slow. Move slow. I feel like that clip contains a lot of necessary wisdom. Um, we don't get a lot of the context. We don't get a lot of the specificity about Black women's experiences or women of color's 
experiences with violence, um, we, we're not encouraged to think broadly about any of the um, factors that would lead to depression or a breakdown. We're given solutions. Take care of you. Take if care of you. If it doesn't feel right, don't do it. And you know, this is a tension that I sometimes feel because I have so many friends, aunts, cousins that find a lot of value in these particular shows. And I can't say that I don't. I also see them having a place, but maybe because I know of the history and what some of the previous conversations were, I want some kind of nod to the bigger issues that are being flattened. It's important to also get an understanding of the bigger societal factors that would allow this to keep going. In other words, if we don't understand the bigger social factors, we're always going to need these concrete solutions and the market continues. Here we are at the start of 2022. You started writing about this in your book that came out in 2016. What has changed in your perceptions of the value of the Black women's wellness movement in the intervening years? What I've been excited to see now among some of the really um, politically engaged and really incisive Black writers is an ability to talk about the social factors as well as solutions. So for instance, um, we're seeing much more um, based in the memoir kind of focus of telling your own story, moving into helping people understand a social problem. I see some of these Black women writers, um, Adrienne Marie Brown with Pleasure Activism, The Body is Not an Apology by Sonia Renee Taylor, and others stepping into and kind of doing that work of saying, this is who I am, this is how I became this way, and this is what we need to know to perhaps either love us where we are or to gain a better understanding of how to be well. Tamika Carey, what a pleasure it's been to speak with you. Thank you for talking with me. Thank you for having me. Tamika Carey is a professor of English at the University of Virginia and author of the book Rhetorical Healing, The Re-Education of Contemporary Black Womanhood. In the wellness world, the word natural reigns supreme, so much so that my next guest argues it's become a religion. Alan Levinovitz is a religion professor at James Madison University. His new book explores how too much faith in nature can be misleading and even harmful. What I'm saying in the book specifically is that people see nature as a monotheistic god. They see nature as a sort of replacement for what was, what was the deity that told them what to eat, who to sleep with, and how to live. And in, the, in that sense, there is a religiosity to natural and naturalness because if nature is god, the natural is holy. And yet, don't the world's religions all say, God is nature, nature is God. God made everything, so it's small surprise that even non-religious people are embracing the spirituality of nature. It, it isn't a surprise. And, and actually, across cultures and across history, we've seen versions of this. However, the idea that the natural world is going to come in and arbitrate how we ought to live is, is false. As Robert Sapolsky, a, a brilliant and wonderful man um, who, who studies primates and also all kinds of other things, wrote this great book, Behave, about, about human behavior. As, as he told me, nature can't tell us how to behave. It can only tell us how difficult it will be to try to behave well. In other words, what's natural to human beings might be something good, in which case it's going to be really easy to behave in a, in a way that is good. It accords with our nature. Or what's natural to human beings might be something really terrible. We might be inclined to violence. In that case, it might be more difficult to overcome our nature. And, and the same goes for the natural world. We can love nature without worshiping it. We can try to understand nature and harmonize with nature without believing 
that the laws of our behavior and our organization are written into nature or written by nature. You've looked at the way natural and indigenous cultures is sort of misunderstood or misrepresented. Tell me more about how you looked into that. One of the trips I took to research this book was to a rainforest in Peru where I met with the Matagenka people. They had just had solar powered lights installed in sort of the main area of their settlement, their village. And the shaman, the, which was all, who's also a leader, um, had spearheaded this. And I was talking to one of the men in the village, and I said to him, how do you feel about these solar-powered lights? Because I'm coming from this perspective that's very hard to shake of, oh, no, this is impure. Why would these people who live in harmony with nature, why would they install these ugly solar lights? They're gonna, there's going to be light pollution at night now before they got to see the stars. And I said, how do you feel about these solar lights? He looked at me like it's completely insane. And he says, I really like them. I said, why? Why would you like these lights? He looks at me again. He says, because I can see at night. <laughs> you know, it's just, right, all, right. All, all of a sudden I realized, you know, <laughs> I, you know this, uh, it, I, it was another interview I did with a, a great, a Harvard professor, Kalestos Yuma. And Kalestos Yuma was, was, grew up in, in a small village where there was no technology at all. And he tells me how he and the other children in this village would run when they heard the sound of a bus arriving in the village because the sound of the bus meant medicine. It meant books. It meant maybe a record player. It meant all of these wonderful things that he didn't have. And what he convinced me of when I talked to him about this is that this idea that nature is a god and natural is holy only comes from a position of privilege where you've already got tap water flowing and you can you can see things at night and you have books and you have microphones like the one that I'm speaking into so you can communicate yourself to the world. But when you don't have those things, so this worship of nature comes from a place of immense privilege and ignorance about the alternative, in my opinion. And I think it's very important to be aware of just how much that privilege shapes our perspective. You also look at several different ways this idea of natural is used in the wellness world. Tell me about what you learned about the Hippocrates Health Institute. I became interested in the Hippocrates Health Institute when I read a tragic story about two First Nations children. So First Nations is the word for indigenous people in Canada who had been sent to this institute for cancer treatment. Now, these girls, their parents, were convinced not to treat their cancer in the traditional, by which I mean, you know, modern medical way, go to a hospital in Canada and get chemotherapy um, or whatever the intervention would have been. They were convinced instead to go to this institute in Florida, the Hippocrates Health Institute, where, not to put too fine a point on it, you treat your cancer with a combination of holistic health interventions and, and vegan smoothies and meals. One of the children died. And the other one came close to dying, but eventually chose, or her parents chose, it's unclear, to undergo modern medical treatments and survived. So when I heard about this, I wanted to visit this institute and find out what it was that was going on there. And I discovered a number of things. One, the people that are going here are desperate. They're scared. They're in pain. And they're not idiots, the people at this institute. And what they wanted was time and attention from their doctors, and they were not getting that. And what they also wanted was to feel like they were surrounded by life. If you think about a hospital, if you've been to a hospital recently, a, a normal hospital, there are no plants anywhere. It's stainless steel and white walls and bright fluorescent lights. It, when, at a time when you are already feeling close to death, you are put in a place that is mechanistic, that is cold and unfeeling, the Hippocrates Health Institute, despite being, in my opinion, a, a really bad place, deeply bad, morally compromised, um, responsible for the deaths of people who shouldn't have died, is very beautiful. There are plants everywhere. It is a place where you feel alive. And in that sense, what I realized was that people who turn to natural medicine often want a sense of agency. They do not want to be patients. They do not want to have to be at the mercy of physicians for prescriptions or, or they be unconscious while surgery is being performed on them. They want to be able to choose 
and they want also to be able to understand why they are sick and what it is that will make them better. You know, really doesn't it come down to ideologies over where do we fit in nature? Is nature something we need to rise above, make our lives better, fight against, um, build our huts, grow our crops, guide water toward the plants, install solar lights, right? Or are we listening to a supreme being saying, you came in this way, this is what I ordain, and this is how it will be? We struggle a great deal. I struggle, too, with, with what it means to be a human in the natural world. Often in, in interviews that I do, people say to me, well, isn't everything natural? Aren't we all made out of stardust? Aren't humans animals and therefore our computers no different from the sticks that chimps use to dig around? And my answer to that, maybe it's a little bit too, you know, too quick, is no, we're not. That's not how it is. We are not just chimpanzees and everything is not natural. I think that, for example, if, if we're interested in conservation, in order to distinguish between Yellowstone Park and New York City, we have to have some sense of what's natural and what's unnatural. New Yellowstone Park is natural, more natural at least, even though there's a road going through it. Nothing's pure, of course. But it's more natural than New York City. And if you look at what it is that conservationists are interested in conserving, it is animals and plants and natural places. So to lose the distinction for the sake of some kind of semantic argument is to make a terrible mistake, in my opinion, when it comes to how we understand the world. And so the way I define it is that natural is anything that, that the order of which is not due to human intention. So everything before humans existing, before humans were on this planet, everything was natural. Unnatural, all the way at the other end of the scale, is anything that owes its order entirely to human intentionality. Now, this is a spectrum. It's not a binary. But I think that is a helpful spectrum. And so then back to your question, how do we figure out where on the spectrum we ought to be when it comes to the mattress we buy for our baby or how we organize our families or who we sleep with or what we eat? I can't answer it, but what I can say is this. Don't worship nature and don't think of natural as synonymous with holy. If we are trying to figure out our place in nature and how to relate to it, that kind of mistake is going to lead us in the wrong direction. It's going to result in everything from opposition to interracial marriage, which often was talked about as unnatural. It's going to result in the rejection of technologies like vaccines. And to me, that's, that's tragic and avoidable. Alan Levinovitz is a professor of religion at James Madison University. His new book is Natural, How Faith in Nature's Goodness Leads to Harmful Fads, Unjust Laws, and Flawed Science. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. New Year's resolutions are often about adding to our lives to make them better. Eat more vegetables, sleep more, start running. Lighty Klotz argues instead of always trying to make change through additions, we should consider more subtractions. Klotz is a professor of engineering at the University of Virginia. His new book is Subtract, the Untapped Science of Less. Lady, your idea for this book came from something that happened to you when you were playing with Legos with your little son. What was it that struck you? Yeah, I was playing with my son, who was three at the time, and we were using those Duplo blocks to build a bridge. And um, the problem we had was the bridge wasn't level. And so I turned around behind me to grab a block to add to the shorter column. Uh, by the time I had turned back around, he had removed a block from the longer column. And uh, what he did in that moment was what we would define in our research as subtracting, which was to make something better by removing from it. And what I hadn't done was think of subtracting, which is something that turns out we all tend not to do uh, left to our own devices. Your book is full of ideas and moments where subtraction is more. Give me a few other examples where you saw it. Uh, my favorite examples are uh, my, I love Maya Lin's Vietnam Veterans Memorial, right? So if you go on the mall in Washington, D.C., that monument totally stands out because of its subtractive nature. And it's also great because there's documentation of Maya Lin's thinking process. And she really did think of that as a cut in the earth. Um, one of the 
hard parts of subtracting, right, is there's not as much evidence there. And yet she was able to subtract in a way that creates this amazing monument. And monuments are usually defined by how big they are, right? Um, so she was able to subtract in this arena of large objects and create something that was truly amazing. Uh, so I love that one. I, you know, going back to the the kids example, of these Strider bikes, um, which are the the bikes for two-year-olds that basically don't have pedals or the drivetrain. My kids have them and, and they're amazing. You, by removing the pedals and removing the drivetrain, the, the kid can can propel themselves kind of like a Flintstone car. There'd been all this innovation in bikes over the past hundred years, you know, bigger tubes, bigger tires, bigger, you know, more gears. Training wheels. Training wheels. And it took forever for somebody to think, hey, what if we remove the uh, remove the pedals? So I, I love that example. Um, there are some larger scale ones. Uh, I mean, a lot of the neat things that are be, being done now with urban planning, for example, involve kind of removing things that we have built that no longer serve us well, whether those are highways that are kind of bisecting cities or whether it's streams that go through cities that we've paved over. Uh, there's a really cool example I talk about in the book in Lexington, Kentucky, um, that they revitalized their downtown by basically like removing the pavement that was over a stream that ran through downtown and revealing that stream. And so it's a very subtractive way to design infrastructure. And and those weren't always possible, right? But now that we've got the society where there's a lot of things that are built up, whether they're physical things like the the cities and the infrastructure or social things like laws and um pieces of writing, a podcast episode that's 40 minutes long that needs to be edited down to 12 minutes. I mean, those are those are things that we've built up, and then now there's more of these opportunities to take away. I live next to a river that had a dam for 100 years. Uh-huh. And when they took the dam away, and I thought, okay, good, maybe, Yeah, it left a gorgeous river. Hmm. And it was so much more accessible and safe than it ever had been. Yeah. Totally can see that idea of removing the paving and revealing city streams. Yeah. It's amazing um, doing the research for the book because there's this great example in Lexington, and then you realize that there are streams under all these cities, right? It's not just Lexington that did this. It's like New York City has streams underneath it. San Francisco has streams underneath it. And so this is something to think about and an opportunity that we have now is like, hey, we could subtract the stuff that we built previously, and that might be the thing that makes the situation better. Another example you give of a form of subtraction in another arena, lawmakers. So every year, and I've noticed this, every year they meet and everyone is sort of measuring their worth by what can I put forth Mm -hmm. that's a new law for everyone to abide by. And what was the place where you said, we're going to do it differently? British Columbia was experiencing the same scope creep in laws that everywhere else was experiencing. Uh, and they said when a, when a legislator decided to bring a law that they wanted to enact, they would also have to bring two that they suggested taking off the books. And I mean, that's just a really great reminder that subtracting is an option. It also prevents people from overlooking it as a way to make things better. And it also helps with this notion of competence, right? Because like you said, you want, as a lawmaker, you want to show your constituents that you're doing something. Um, and now all of a sudden, the because subtracting is a requirement, but when you take two laws away, you're showing your constituents that, hey, I'm, I'm doing something. So it, it worked really well. It kind of turned around their, their growth in unnecessary laws. And also, um, as the story goes, at least, uh, has kind of shifted the mindset among lawmakers there where it's like, hey, we can make the the functioning of our province better by adding things and by removing things, which is the mindset that I think helps all of us. You also write about this idea of digital minimalism. Yeah. Tell me about that idea and what's involved with it. Yeah. I mean, Cal Newport has a great book on digital minimalism, and uh, it's you know, basically being strategic about your, the information that you consume. Um, and so for me, that means batching when I check emails. So just check it once a day and force yourself to only check it once a day. And that really, every time you check your email, right, you get distracted and you, your mind gets taken off of what you are doing otherwise. And all of a sudden you're working on somebody else's problem instead of what you think is the most important thing. And so for me, what works is saying, okay, 
four o'clock or whenever I decide I'm going to check it, I'll, I'll check it and try to get through it all and then come back to it the next day at the same time. And the same thing, you know, I don't, Twitter's not my favorite thing, but I also gain some value from it. But one way that I kind of keep that in check is just looking at it once a day. Um, and so I think the, you know, the general principle with digital minimalism is, you know, be cognizant of all this information that we have now, right? This is something, just the amount of information that we're inundated with every day and the amount of opportunities to acquire information is incredibly high. And so we have to be cognizant of, of what we're taking in and also think about what, what information we might, might subtract, you know, information that we've already acquired might no longer be serving us well. You do this in some other ways in your own life. Like instead of having a weekly meeting, you yeah. tried having it every other week. Yeah. I mean, that's just a great example of a stop doing, I think. And it's um, once a week and that's just a really arbitrary thing, right? We do that because that's how our calendar is organized throughout the year. We haven't really put in thought about whether the meeting is actually needed every week. Um, and if you switch it to a biweekly meeting, uh, and everything still gets accomplished, then you've freed up that time every other week. Uh, and you can always add it back if it's not working. So it's worth a try. Before we get into the science of it, I have to ask you about this principle in parenting. You give such a wonderful example about singing to your child. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the hardest, so the three lullabies is the example. And um, I don't know how I got into a routine of singing th three different you know, the same song three different times uh, to my son, but I did. What is it? Racing in the Street by Bruce Springsteen. It's a great song. Uh, and he he loves it. And, and I love it. So I don't, um, that might not be something that I want to subtract, but it illustrates this principle of the more you care about something, the harder it is to take away to make it better. Um, and when I'm singing three lullabies, I mean, that that song's about six minutes. So that's like 18 minutes of, of singing that he's not getting sleep. And so maybe I could cut it down to, to one lullaby and he gets a little bit more sleep, also gets a little bit better at, you know, putting it like falling asleep without three lullabies. So there's this, this balance. But um, it's really hard to do in your parenting. I think that's kind of the last area that I've been able to <laughs> apply some of this wisdom in is, is my own parenting because I care so much about it. And when you care so much about something, you, you rely even more on these kind of defaults of, okay, adding is the way to make things better and I need to add and I need to be doing everything possible to create a, you know, a good life or help my child achieve you know, what they're trying to achieve. So yeah, parenting's hard. <laughs> so what is the science behind the impulse to do more? Mm -hmm. um, what drives us? I don't think that we're making it up. There is something that says change, grow, improve. So what I could speak to most directly is the science that grew out of the Ezra's Lego, my son's Lego bridge. And then the experiments that we did we would create Lego structures where the, the right answer was to subtract. So you'd say, do this task with the Legos, and you could basically complete it by adding eight blocks or by subtracting one block if you thought of it. So when people didn't think to subtract one block, that was evidence that it wasn't that they didn't like subtracting. It was that they didn't think of subtracting. And we found that in Legos. We found it in other contexts. We found it with random grids on a computer screen, which for me were the most convincing evidence because somebody could, with Legos, people can always say, oh, well, we're just conditioned to build with Legos. you know. And when we showed this in travel itineraries, you might say, oh, well, people are just used to adding to their travel itineraries. But these random grids on a computer screen, there's no context. The adding behavior there couldn't be explained by you know, some previous experience with grids on a computer screen. You've got some neat ideas about using this model of subtraction toward mitigating climate change. That's the real root of this. I mean, I, I've always been interested in design via less. For me, this kind of tension between the quest for infinite growth and the very real planetary boundaries that we have. Um, and so with climate change, it could be something as grand as, okay, well, let's think about how do we remove CO2 from the atmosphere, right? How, not just stem the flow of CO2 into the atmosphere, which we're you know, which we've been talking about doing for a long time, um, but also pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere, which is, you know, much more prominent now in the climate plans than it has been. 
Um, and then I think, you know, all the way down to kind of consumption or this, this consumptive mindset, right? We have this notion that if you buy a, some product with 30% recycled material, you're somehow fixing climate change and all you're doing is just kind of, <laughs> you're not really doing anything to, to help with climate change and you're still buying the thing, right? So um, there's a reduce, reuse, recycle is this kind of hierarchical framing for how we should manage waste. And we always just get stuck on that last one, recycle, which is basically slow the rate of adding. Even reduce, the first one is kind of add less. And so there should be a, uh, one before that even maybe that's remove, right? How can we remove the, the damage that we've caused and, and kind of shift that mindset when we're thinking about climate change so that subtracting can be helpful there. Does that make sense? Or stop buying. Stop buying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think there's a distinction, right? I mean, buying the distinction, a distinction between services and things, right? You know, because we get so focused on these physical things and so much of what actually brings us happiness is human interaction and being able to see the people who you want to see. What you care about is not the actual highway, the actual building, the actual um, restaurant. Uh, it's the it's the experience. And I, I get that those physical things aid the experience. But if we focused a little bit more on the experience, we might see some opportunities that to provide that experience without without the negative effects. It's that you sing Bruce Springsteen to your two year old. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. That's the best 20 minutes of my day. Lighty Klotz, thank you for sharing it with me on With Good Reason. Thanks. It was great talking. Lighty Klotz is a professor of engineering at the University of Virginia. His new book is Subtract, The Untapped Science of Less. We're living through what's been dubbed the Great Resignation— People are leaving their jobs in droves, and we can't quite figure out why. Richard Bargdill thinks boredom might have something to do with it. Bargdill is a psychology professor at Virginia Commonwealth University. He studies habitual boredom and how people can break out of the boredom cycle to lead a better life. Richard, this has been called the period of the great resignation with people leaving their jobs in droves. You have speculated maybe boredom has a little to do with it. How so? Yes, I think, you know, one of the things that I found in the research is that your job is one of the, the places where you're mostly bored. And unfortunately, boredom is an invasive emotion. It, it starts in one spot and it does not stay there. It grows and it grows past just your job into your life. Give me an example of how that might happen or how it has happened to you. If you're bored with your job, you would think you only would be bored when you arrive at your job. But actually, you start feeling bored prior to your job because you have to get ready for your work. You have to drive to your work. You have to arrive at your work. And then most people, after spending eight hours bored plus the two two hours before it, all of a sudden they're, they're sort of debriefing after work. So their boredom starts to invade their personal life. It doesn't stay in the situation in which it starts. It spreads. You know, when I was little, I used to hear people say, only boring people get bored. Is that the case? Are there some of us as children who are more prone to experience boredom via our personality? Do we just come out that way? Almost all bored people start out not being bored, or they remember times where they weren't bored. So it isn't a condition that you're sort of born with. You, you know, a lot of people who end up being profoundly or habitually or experience life boredom, they were not bored their whole life, and they can remember that. But I do think that we can look to the external world for entertainment a little too much. Where we, could, we start to see boredom as being the world's problem. This is boring to me. And we don't realize that, that we have to sort of find our internal interests and that boredom is within us and not outside of us. 
you know, I've sometimes seen people I care about yawn while appearing to affect boredom, where in my heart I think they are depressed. I uh, have studied a little bit about boredom and depression, and they do appear similar in certain aspects, but I also want to make the distinction that they are slightly different. The bored person has a tendency to fall into a, a habit of passivity. They think there's a hopeful future out there, but they just don't um, know how to get there. Whereas the depressed person uh, increasingly has a sense of hopelessness. They, they don't believe that the future will ever be a positive at all. There's several other small distinctions that I like to, to make between boredom and depression, but other research is showing they're not the same thing. What ideas do you have or suggestions might you have for helping people break out of this habitual boredom stage? Well, it's actually very difficult to do, and, and this is what's surprising and how I think boredom can eventually turn into depression because after a while, you, you've wasted enough of your own time that you really can become depressed. And so, you know, I've been spending the last few years looking at what is meaning-making, what is creativity, and also... Uh, a, a new thing I'm investigating is aesthetic chills, which are sort of getting goosebumps when you see something profound. And I'm, I suggest that people start paying attention to those things where they kind of have a visceral reaction to something profound so that they, they know where to find meaning in their life. You know, driving into work today, I passed this beautiful tree filled with yellow leaves, and a gust of wind blew them off in a shower of glimmering yellow. And I felt that. What did you call it? It's called an aesthetic chill. Right. It's a fancy word for goosebumps for beauty. But I, I think that's a great example of you have a, sometimes we have a visceral reaction. Our bodies respond to beauty. And it, imagine if you could chart Every incident that you've had in the last year or so where you had that same reaction, we generally just don't pay much attention to it. But you would actually have a, uh, you know, sort of a template of what you find profoundly beautiful. And if you start paying attention to that, what I've discovered through my own research is that you'll start having more similar experiences of it. So just as boredom is an invasive emotion, paying attention to your own profound moments of beauty also increases the likelihood that you'll have more of those experiences. So that, in a way, is a way out of boredom. But you know, when it comes back to boredom and the pandemic, right, and the great resignation, people leaving jobs, not coming back to them, at least not yet, there's so much pain and loss, sickness, death, scariness about jobs, but on the other hand, this this great leave-taking maybe during the pandemic is maybe a great mass thing that's happening. Wherever in our lives are we given a chance to reevaluate and rechart our own course, right? I think you're absolutely right. This it, boredom itself is a very important message. It's just a hard one to interpret, but boredom is basically telling all of us always that this does not mean anything to me. This is not a good use of my time. That's what boredom is telling. I am not engaged. I'm not having a flow experience. This is awful and I don't like it. And, but most of us are stuck, right? We have a paycheck we're counting on, or there's people counting on us to continue doing certain things, and we can't get out of it. And, and that's why time stretches, feels like it's taking forever to occur, because it really is. Our, our experience is that time is not going very fast. So anything that gets us to say, I'm getting out of a situation that bores me to death is usually a, a good thing. So I would say 
what's happening while there could be some obviously time before we get back on our feet it's actually a good thing to make decisions that take us in a more life-bringing direction do you think the 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 negatives of boredom the opportunity for it and the pervasiveness of it are happening more because of modernity yes i i would agree with that when you're in survival mode that's a pretty attention grabbing <laughs> thing that you have to yeah. do how do i survive <laughs> Once survival is mostly taken care of, now you have to ask, am I doing something that I want to do? Boredom is both a byproduct of modernity, but also an opportunity for us to start thinking about, gee, I only got a little bit of time left. Is this the best way for me to use it? And I think that's kind of behind what the pandemic revealed. Hey, we could die at any moment, right? Do I want to spend the next 10 years of my life doing a job I just don't enjoy at all? And for enough people, the answer is no. I don't care what happens to me. I'm not going to live like this. Richard Bargdill is a psychology professor at Virginia Commonwealth University. Support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, a National Cancer Institute designated cancer center researching and developing the treatments of tomorrow. UVAHealth.com. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monacan Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Maya Neer and Cassandra Deering are our interns. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>